This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com Funding for this class is provided by Benjamin Arieh and family in loving memory of Raphael, son of Chacham Rabbi Chia. Lessons in Tanya The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg Chapter 8, page 125 He said earlier that foods that are forbidden and the word used in the Talmud when something is forbidden is Asur Asur, he explained, comes from the word it's bound, it's tied up trapped, it cannot be released because the divine energy cannot be elevated cannot be released unless the person does the Shuva or unless, until the times of Mashiach coming of Mashiach and now he says he brings out an additional aspect to the uh, forbidden foods there is an additional aspect in the matter of forbidden foods for which reason they are called Isur bound and attached even if one ate a forbidden food unwittingly and his intention in eating was for the sake of heaven in order to serve God with the energy derived from it. In other words, before, in the previous chapter, he was speaking about someone who intentionally violated this prohibition. So that cannot be elevated. Here he's saying that even if unintentionally, unwittingly, like all those poor Jews in the last nine years who were buying meat from that butcher upstate, Unwittingly, they thought they're blind glot kosher, and it turns out they were eating, unfortunately, they were eating non-kosher meat. So without knowing, they bought non-kosher meat. And their intent was in, to eat in order to have strength, in order to serve Hashem. And not only this was their intent, continue. Had the food been permitted, the very act of eating for the sake of heaven would suffice to extract the good from the evil of the food's vitality as explained above. In this instance, however, forbidden food was eaten for the sake of heaven. Moreover, even if he actually carried out his intention, having studied and prayed with the energy derived from the food, again, had the food been permitted, and the person studied and prayed with the energy provided by the food, the energy would be elevated to sanctity. So not only did he eat it with the intent of studying and serving Hashem, he actually went ahead and with that energy that he received from the food, he was famished, he was starving, he ate the food, and now he feels vibrant and strong and energized, and now with a renewed vigor, renewed energy, he runs to shul, and he davens, and he learns. He says, nevertheless, because the food was forbidden, the vitality, the vitality contained in it does not ascend or become closed in the words of Torah and prayer that he studies and prays with the energy of that food, as is the case with permitted food. 
because it is held captive in the power of the supra-akra, three unclean klipo, which do not permit the energy of the food to be elevated to sanctity. So that's another distinction between foods that are permitted versus food that are prohibited. That foods that are prohibited, even if it's unintentional, and you meant well, and with that energy and that strength that that food provided you, you went ahead and studied Torah and, and fulfilled the mitzvah. Nevertheless, the food is not elevated. It remains trapped. The divine energy remains trapped and it remains forbidden. Well, you may ask the question, why is that? The bottom line is that with this, without that energy, he would not have the strength to study. So the fact that he studied Torah was only with the strength and the energy of this food. So why isn't the food elevated? Why do we say that the food is not elevated? When with that strength, he went ahead and did something holy, studied Torah and did mitzvah. And without that food, it would be impossible for him to study Torah and do mitzvah. So it's that food should be part of the, of the elevation. And the food should be elevated together with it. The question is not how, why isn't the food elevated when the food is prohibited and with that energy you went ahead and studied Torah. The question really is how does kosher food, how is kosher food elevated? If we use this table and we're using this table to study, does the table become elevated by the intellectual, by the ideas that are floating in your mind while you study? What's the connection between mental activity and the table? There's no connection. Or take a closer example. If you have an idea and you use your hands to write the idea, to type the idea, and let's say you sit and type for 20 years and 30 years and 40 years and your hands are typing a lot of wisdom. <laughs> Lots of wisdom have flowed through your fingers. Do your fingers become elevated? Do your fingers become more understanding? No. Fingers have no connection to intellect. It just passes through your fingers. But your fingers a finger who, doesn't, who, who, who does not write words of Torah, and a finger writes words of Torah the, the, or words of wisdom, the finger does not become elevated. The finger is not a vessel. It's not a vehicle for wisdom. There's no relationship. There's no connection between fingers and touching and the world of ideas, the world of intellect. It's only the brain, even a person who's born with an average mental capacity, if you truly exercise your brain and you truly utilize your brain and the more you think and the more you understand and the more you deepen your mind, the more you develop your brain. And now your brain becomes a vessel with usage. The brain becomes a vessel and a vehicle to understand more complex ideas and deeper ideas. The more you use it, the more you can absorb, the more you can uh, express it. So why is that? Because the brain is a vessel for the intellectual, for intellect, for ideas, for concepts. So the more the intellectual capacity of the soul engages the brain, the brain expands and the brain becomes a vessel to receive even greater capacity, to draw down even a greater capacity of the soul to understand. Because the brain is a vessel, a vehicle for intellect, for concepts. The hands and fingers are not vessels and vehicles for concepts. A table is not a vessel and a vehicle for concepts. So the question really is, not how is it that when you eat something that's prohibited, how is it that that food is not elevated? The question is, how is it when you eat something that's permitted, how is it possible that through that 
The food becomes elevated, becomes a holy object. How can something physical become holy? And the answer is, this is a divine gift that was given to the Jewish people to transform material into divine, into spiritual. Not only does a Jew have the power to take a leather hide of an animal, and when you do a mitzvah with it, like the mitzvah of tefillin, or you write a mezuzah, you write a Torah scroll, does that object become a sacred object and a holy object? But a Jew also has the ability to take something that's permissible, not an obligation. That's permissible. I'm eating, I'm drinking, it's kosher, it's permissible, it's not a mitzvah. But when through your intent, through having an intent, l'shem shemayim, for the sake of heaven, by injecting a conscious connection that I'm eating, the theme of my life is that I'm eating and I'm drinking and I'm, I'm going about my business and everything is for the sake of Hashem. I'm bringing Hashem into everything that I do. By constantly thinking about Hashem and being aware of Hashem, a Jew has the ability to take everything that you interact with, everything you come in contact with, and to connect it with Hashem, that the food, that the energy within the food becomes elevated and becomes holy. Becomes elevated into the, the realm of holiness and godliness. That's a novelty. So the Torah says that that's only effective in the case of something that's kosher, that's permissible. That comes from the three klipot. But, when something is prohibited, there is no elevation. Although, without that energy, I could not have possibly studied Torah. I could not have possibly prayed or done a mitzvah. It doesn't matter. The food cannot be elevated. Because Hashem says this can't be elevated. This is trapped. It's asur. The divine spark is trapped in this object. It, can, it cannot be elevated. And this really leads us to something very, very fundamental in Yiddishkeit. That when the Torah says something is prohibited, it's not something subjective. There are no Robin Hoods in Judaism. But I mean well. I'm stealing from the rich to give to the poor. I'm a knight in shining armor. My intentions are noble. And the same is true with prohibited relationships. But we love each other. It's so loving. It's so beautiful. The heart can melt. It doesn't make it kosher. You can't kosher a nun. A non-kosher. You can't take a pig and make it kosher. You can slaughter it and you can salt it and you can take it to the rabbi. You can't make a pig kosher. You can't take a prohibited relationship no matter how noble your intentions are, no matter what a beautiful, sensitive soul you are. It does not become kosher. It's objective. It's real. When the Torah says something is permissible, it's objective. It's real. It means that this is kosher. It's permissible. It has the ability to be elevated through your effort. When the Torah says something is prohibited, it's absolutely prohibited. It's objectively prohibited. No matter what your intentions are, no matter what your subjective intentions are, even as in this case, it was unintentional. You had the best intentions, you were totally oblivious, you had no idea. You meant well, but you ate the poison. It doesn't matter. But I meant well. Yes, you ate the poison and you died. But I meant well. It's still poison. It's wrong. The act itself is prohibited. The act itself, the divine spark is trapped. The act itself is a coarse act, a selfish act. This act cannot be elevated. This animal is a predatory animal. The divine spark cannot be elevated. 
No matter what your intentions are, you cannot crack the shell. It doesn't make a difference. It can't change it, it can't transform it, it can't kill it. And this is the essence of Judaism. Many people make a mistake because they think, well, I'm being... It's, what matters is the personal, the subjective, the religiosity, the nobility. What difference does it make? Good and evil is objective. It's real. And no matter what our intentions are, it really makes no difference. This is good, this is healthy, and this is poison. Eat junk food. But I meant well. I didn't realize it was junk. It's going to have the same effect. It is what it is. It can change our power is limited. It's not everything is not. An, it's not everything is subjective. There's an objective reality out, and we are bound by it, and we cannot affect it or change it. We cannot decide what is good or what is not good. Only the Creator of heaven and earth creates and decides. This is good. And this is evil. This the divine spark is accessible could be elevated and this act and this deed and this thought and this speech the divine spark cannot be accessed access. it's too coarse it conceals the divine spark it's not it's not it's not accessible it's off limits stay away don't touch it. the 10 foot pole and this is where Judaism is coming from and this is a very fundamental belief in Judaism and now he continues this is so even if it is forbidden by reason of a rabbinic prohibition, for the words, i.e. the prohibitions of the scribes, are even more stringent than the words of the Torah. So what he's saying here is something very, very novel. He's saying even a rabbinic prohibition. So you would think that a rabbinic prohibition, when the Torah says that something is permissible, but the rabbis come and prohibit it, that the prohibition only affects the person. That means that the object itself is kosher. Because the Torah says it's kosher. The rabbis said it's prohibited. So you would think that the rabbinic prohibition only affects the person. That the person is prohibited from engaging in this object. But the object itself remains kosher. And therefore, if a person without knowing, unwittingly, innocently, went ahead and ate this food which is rabbinically prohibited, and with that food, for example, you're not allowed to eat, Torah says you're not allowed to eat milk and meat. The biblical prohibition is only if it's, if it's uh, meat, not chicken. The rabbis added the prohibition that it also, also, they also prohibited chicken. So let's say a person eats unwittingly. He ate chicken and milk. And he gave him such strength, and he went ahead, and with that strength, he ran to shul. He came 6.30 in the morning, and he was learning, and he was davening, and felt great, he was soaring. So you would think, listen, yes, there's a rabbinic prohibition, but the rabbinic prohibition is only on the person. The chicken itself is not prohibited, because biblically it's kosher. When God created the world, chicken was kosher. To mix, and you're allowed to mix chicken with milk, chicken and milk with kosher. So, you, so there's no prohibition on chicken and milk, on the object of chicken and milk. The prohibition is on the person. But here, since the person was, went ahead unintentionally and innocently and unwittingly and went ahead and ate it, and with his strength, he studied Torah. Without the strength, it would be impossible for him to study Torah and to do the mitzvah. You would think in this case that the divine energy within the chicken and the milk here would be elevated. Dr. Rebbe says no. 
that this is the power that God empowered the rabbis. That the rabbis have the ability to take an object that from creation was okay and kosher and permitted and the divine energy and divine spark in this object ha- has had the ability to be elevated. The rabbis were given the ability when they say this is prohibited, the object itself was transformed and now it has become prohibited. The object itself becomes poison. It becomes an object that's prohibited, that the divine spark can no longer be elevated. And therefore, even if unwittingly you went ahead and ate with it, you cannot be elevated. And he explains the reason is, as the Talmud says, because the prohibition of the scribes is even more stringent than the words of the Torah. The Torah itself is called Sefer, the book, Sefer Torah. The rabbis are called the words of Sofer. Sofer is the one who writes the Torah. Sofer is the one who is even superior to the Torah. The Sefer is the finished book. But the Sefer is the one who is writing the Torah, who is in charge of the Torah, who is writing the Torah. The source of it. So that's why the Torah says that the words of the rabbis are even more severe than the words of the Torah. Because the rabbis are in touch with a much deeper part of Hashem, the fact that they're able to delve deeper and they're able to understand what Hashem is hinting at, what Hashem really means, His inner meaning, and therefore they have the power to take something that's formally kosher and permitted and to declare that now this is toxic and it's no longer kosher or permitted. That's the power of the rabbis. Therefore, the Yetzirah, evil impulse, and the force that lusts after forbidden things is also one of the non-Jewish demons, which is the Yetzirah of the nations, whose souls are derived from the three unclean people. They therefore lust after forbidden matters, since the forbidden matters too derive their energy from the three unclean people. On the other hand, the evil impulse and the craving force after permissible things, even when done solely to satisfy one's craving, in which case, as mentioned earlier, even the permissible matter descends into the utter evil of the three unclean clipots. Still, it is one of the Jewish demons. It is, as it were, a Jewish evil impulse, for it, the vitality of a permitted thing can be reverted to holiness, as was explained above. So a Jew, by nature, the Zohar says, like two types of demons, meaning two types of negative spiritual energy. There is a... Jewish demon and non-Jewish demon. A Jew to whom 365 things are prohibited, are off-limits to, the Jew naturally, instinctively, only has an urge towards permissible things. It's a demon, it's a negative energy, because like we learned earlier, the holy aspect, the holy part within us doesn't lust after the material for its own sake, materialism for its own sake. It's, it, it desires the material just as a means to an end, in order to serve Hashem. It's a tool, it's a container, it's a vehicle, it's a vessel, that's all it is. Without the physical, without the shell, you need the shell to protect the fruit, so you need, you need the external, the material, in order to, to develop the soul. So that's, that's from the holy part within us from the angel within us. But from the demon within us, the negative energy, we just lust after materialism. Materialism is an end in itself. Gratification is an end in itself. And that's negative, and that's wrong. But it's a kosher demon. 
Because what are we lust after? We lust after some things that are kosher. But we, we are doing it out of lust. A delicious cholent, uh, but we're doing it out of... We're not doing it for the sake of heaven. We're doing it just for its own sake. So that's, that, that's a Jewish Yetzirah. By nature, by instinct. By nature, by instinct, the Jew does not lust to do something prohibited. It's just foreign to our nature. By nature, we want to do good. By nature, we want to be connected with Hashem. We want to do the right thing. But with doing the right thing, you can do the right thing and do it the right way. Eating kosher and doing something that's kosher, but doing it for all the right reasons. Being conscious of Hashem. Or you can ignore Hashem and you're doing it out of lust. That's a, that's a Jewish yetzahar. But for the lust after something that's prohibited, that's foreign to us. It's like a non-Jewish yetzahar. Non-Jews are not prohibited from doing the 365 prohibitions. only prohibited for a Jew. So for a Jew to be, be lustful after things that the Torah prohibits, non-kosher food and non-kosher behavior and non-kosher acts, is foreign to us. It doesn't come natural to us. It's not instinctive. But you may ask the question, we know many, we can look at ourselves, we don't have to go far. We know many people. We know ourselves. We, many times we lust things that we know are prohibited, absolutely prohibited. No ifs, maybes, buts, just absolutely prohibited. No way to rationalize it. We know that it's wrong, but we lost it. Where does that lust come from? If we say that a Jew by nature only lusts after kosher things, but he does it out of, out of lust, out of a materialistic desire, not out of a sense of holiness, where does this lust for non-kosher things come from? So, as the Talmud says, the Yetzirah doesn't just come, doesn't, get a Jew to sin overnight. The Yetzirah, the evil inclination, is very clever. First it comes as a guest, as a visitor. And then it takes over. <laughs> by, the time, by the time he's over, you're sleeping in the guest room and he's, he's in the master bedroom. He's running the show. But first he starts out very gently, just a guest. Today he says, do a little thing, do this, and then he says, do that. And before you know it, you're totally off the beaten track. Because he knows he can come to a Jew a good Jew, and suddenly, overnight, tell him to sin, the Jew will, will uh, recoil in horror. He comes slowly, but surely, just do a little thing. Just do this. And then that leads to the next thing. And Wait, Al Rebbe explains it here, that the reason is because whenever a Jew lusts after something that's material, even if it's kosher, then he degrades that energy, and that energy, that item becomes degraded into the level of absolute evil, of Gimel Klippotatmeit. Therefore, that coarsens your soul. And that coarsening leads you down the road that suddenly you start lusting towards prohibited things. Formerly, something that was prohibited was you recoiled in heart. Me, a good Jew, do something prohibited. Something that Hashem forbids. Impossible. Never, ever. But you, you, firstly, you indulge kosher things, material things. And that indulgence leaves a negative scar. And it coarsens your soul. And that leads to the next level. You actually lust to do something prohibited until you become addicted. God forbid to something prohibited, then you can't even stop yourself. And that's what the mother means. First, the Yitzhara comes in as a guest. He's a guest. What do you mean a guest? Because the, your soul comes in contact with 
the three klipot that are absolutely evil. It's only as a guest, because it's only a guest inside you. It's not really you. Because even when the kosher food, the, when you degrade the kosher food, and the energy within that kosher food temporarily descends into the three klipot, it's only temporary. Because since it's kosher, as we learned earlier, it still has the ability to be re-elevated. So therefore, it's like a guest. It's not permanent. It doesn't become permanently part of the three klipot, of the absolute evil, the realm of absolute evil. Because the divine spark is not trapped forever. Even after it descended and you ate lustfully, you can re-elevate that spark. So it's only like a guest. It's just a visit. But that contact, that visitation of the three klipotat made in your own soul, in your own being, coarsens your soul and leaves a scar in your soul. And that leads to the next step where you actually start lusting something as bad. And then that leads to the next step until you're totally addicted and trapped, etc., It's a a downward spiral. Since the food itself is permissible, therefore, though it was eaten to satisfy bodily desire, it can still be elevated to holiness. And the person returns to the study of Torah and the service of Hashem. The Yetzirah, for forbidden matters, however, is intrinsically un-Jewish, i.e. essentially foreign to the Jew's character. As explained elsewhere, one acquires this foreign Yetzirah by immersing himself in permitted pleasures. These so coarsen him that he begins to lust after prohibited matters as well, a desire totally unnatural for the Jew. Although the vitality of permitted foods eaten out of bodily desire can revert to holiness through the person's repentance, nevertheless, before it, it has reverted to holiness, it is sitra, akra, and klipa, and even afterwards, after the person repented, elevated the energy of the food to holiness a trace of it remains attached to the person's body. Even though when you eat something that's kosher and you eat it in a lustful way, it still remains something that's permitted because it can still be untied, unbound, it could be released and elevated. And if you take that energy and study Torah with it and do mitzvot with it, then you elevate that spark. But nevertheless, during the interim, in the, in the interim, that moment, until you took that energy and studied Torah with it, it de- you degraded the food and its energy into the level, the realm of three klippon. And that, affects, and that affects you. And that leaves a scar, even after the fact. Even if later on you go and you elevate the spark, the, the, the scar is still remains. Even if you do tshuva? Even if you do tshuva. Why? Now he explains. Right. How about if you do tshuva? Yeah, even if you do tshuva. Why? Since each item of food and drink that one ingests immediately becomes blood and flesh of his flesh. Since the food which became his flesh and blood was evil at the time of consumption, having been eaten for the sake of bodily pleasure, a trace of the klipa remains in the body even after the person has repented and elevated the vitality of the food to holiness. So this is a very, very key point. You are what you eat. So the fact of the matter is that when you digested the food and that food became part of your blood, became part of you, inseparable part of you, at that moment that food was in the realm of three klipot, of impurity, the antithesis of godliness. And that became part of you. So how do, how do you change it? That tumma, that impurity has already been integrated into the system. 
It's like that poison has already entered your system. The virus has entered your system. It's in your blood. It's become part of you. You made intimate contact. And therefore, the scar remains. An impression, impression remains. And that's why it says you have to be extremely careful with what we eat. It says even little children, even though children are not obligated, you have to be very careful with little children what, what you feed them. You would think, what's the big deal? The little kids, they're not obligated yet. They're on the contrary. Because you are what you eat, if you give little children food that's not kosher, it's not 100% kosher, it will negatively affect the child as they're growing up, the most formative years of their life, the most important years of their life. Because it becomes part of them. It's not a question, obligated, not obligated. It's you're injecting poison into the system. And it's so delicate. You have to be more careful. There was a, um, a story brought down in the Hasidic discourse with the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe that there was a Hasid who came to the Alter Rebbe. I think a father, his father came to the Alter Rebbe and said that his son has doubts, doubts about God. He has serious doubts whether God exists. Suddenly he has these doubts entering his, his head. And it's really disturbing him. He doesn't know where these doubts are coming from. Dr. Rebbe says, the reason is because he drank hull of akum. He drank milk that was milked by a non-Jew. And a Jew is not allowed to drink milk without any Jewish supervision, even if the milk is kosher. But rabbinically, it's forbidden to drink milk. It's not what we call hull of Israel, Jewish milk. And by the way, he drank it unwittingly. He wasn't aware. He didn't even realize. But the fact of the matter is that he drank something that's rabbinically, only rabbinically prohibited. But as we said earlier, the rabbis were empowered by God. They are the divrei seifim. They are the ones who write the sefer. They are empowered by God to prohibit something that formerly was kosher. And therefore, by drinking that milk, it contaminated his mind. And suddenly, his mind became full with impure thoughts questioning the very foundations of faith. That's the extent that food has in what you eat, what you digest. And that explains why Pesach says, we find, the, the Talmud says that Hashem protects the tzaddik. No, no, Hashem does not allow the tzaddik to stumble. Taste was asked. We find many cases when the tzaddik did stumble. So, what do you mean that Hashem protects the tzaddik from stumbling? Taste was says that this is only true regarding food, food items. That Hashem will not allow the tzaddik to eat something non kosher. Why? What's the distinction? Where's the logic? What's the difference? This is prohibited and this is prohibited. But now we can understand because Al Tarebi is saying food becomes part of you. If you do a sin and you do it unintentionally, fine. So it doesn't affect you internally. And you did it unintentionally. So, so God doesn't have to make a miracle to protect the tzaddik from stumbling or not sinning. It, 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 the whole thing was unintentional. So it's not really a sin. And he wasn't aware of it. And it didn't affect him. But to allow the tzaddik to eat the poison, to digest the poison, and then it's too late. 
You can't say what well, he's a tzaddik, it was done unintentionally. It doesn't matter, you ate the poison, it's affecting you, it's in your blood system, it's there. That Hashem even has to perform a miracle and say, I'm not going to let the tzaddik stump. And then Tesis continues. He says, but if we find cases where we find even a tzaddik who stumbled regarding food. So he says, there's a difference between something that's temporarily prohibited, something that's permanently prohibited. For example, eating matzah and Pesach, eating chametz and Pesach. Eating chametz and Pesach, since it's only temporary, then even a tzaddik could stumble. But something permanent, something that's permanently for food, that's permanently prohibited, that Hashem will never allow a tzaddik to make a mistake to stumble. So again, where's the logic? What's the difference? And now we can understand. When you say that something is generally permitted and a certain time period is prohibited, or like eating on Yom Kippur, to say that the food is not kosher, how can you say the food is not kosher? It's kosher before Yom Kippur, it's kosher after Yom Kippur. There's nothing wrong with the food. I can't call the food poison. It's only during the 24 hours of Yom Kippur that the Torah says you're not allowed to eat food. You're not, you can't say that the food is something wrong with the food. The person is not allowed to eat the food. So even if by accident, by mistake, he, he, he transgresses and he eats, Hashem doesn't have to perform a miracle to stop the tzaddik because you can't say that it's like poison and he digested it and became part of him. and no, The whole thing was a mistake. There's nothing wrong with the food. When, oh, it's only when the food is permanently prohibited. That means that the object itself is poison. Then what difference does it make? He did it unintentionally, intentionally. It's too late. It's in the system. Therefore, Hashem has to protect and based on what he said earlier, actually, in the beginning of the chapter, we're discussing food, he says, even if unintentionally you eat something that's not kosher, and you study Torah with that strength, with that energy that gives you the strength to study Torah, nevertheless, the food cannot be elevated. He said, this explains the opinion of Maimonides. There's an argument in Maimonides and the it. Let's say a non-Jew holds a gun to your head and says, forces you to eat non-kosher food. The question is, do you have to make a blessing or not? If you're eating food because, because you're in danger, your life is in danger, then according to all opinions, you have to eat the food. Because if your life is in danger, as Alter Rebbe already pointed out, then it's, then it's permitted. Then it, it's a mitzvah. It's a mitzvah to eat the food and to sustain your life. So then the, the food becomes holy and, and, and the food becomes kosher and of course it could be elevated. But let's see, you're not in danger. It's not life and death. A non-Jew forces you to eat the non-kosher food. Are you obligated to make a blessing or not? A Jew is not allowed to benefit from this world without thanking Hashem. So you're eating. It's food. It's tasty. Well, you should thank Hashem. So I have his opinion. The Ramam says no. How can you make a blessing on food that's not good? For without the Rebbe's explanation, it makes sense. Because since you cannot elevate the food, the food remains objectively prohibited. The food is prohibited. Therefore... How can you make a blessing? You only make a blessing on something you can elevate. The blessing elevates the food, the energy. Since it's impossible to elevate, no matter what the intentions were, no matter what, it's objectively wrong and prohibited and off-limits, off out-of-bounds, therefore you don't make a blessing. But here you see the power of food, that food 
has you internalize the food and it becomes part of you and therefore it leaves a, 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 an eternal impression on you. The body, we know that the body doesn't forget. It doesn't forget <laughs> everything that we ate <laughs> when we were children. Everything, is re- everything registers in the body. Nothing, nothing just... The body remembers everything that we ate. Every piece of junk food that we ate. Every piece of garbage that we ate. The body remembers. It doesn't, it's not in a vacuum. It's, you ate it. It became part of you. It leaves an impression. It leaves an impact. Tiny impression. Bigger impression. But it's there. The impression is there. Because it has become part of you. So every time a Jew indulges eats and indulges and eats like a glut or just indulges in the material pleasure of food for its own sake as an end in itself even if later on you took this energy and with this energy you studied Torah and you did mitzvot and you prayed and, and, and which at that time you elevate the food the energy is elevated but since in between when you ate as a glut it entered your body, it became part of your bloodstream. And it entered your body as part of the realm of the three klipot, as the evil and the negative. It left an, eternal, uh, an everlasting impression, a negative impression of negative energy in, in your system. And therefore, a person needs a cleansing. After 120 years, a person needs a cleansing. The whole death is really a cleansing process. It's a healing process, it's a, uh, um, a, a an atonement um, the death of the ego is the ultimate ultimate atonement because ego is the source of all evil and the death of the ego is the ultimate atonement for all of our sins even the worst sins, even the sin of Chilul Hashem, of desecrating Hashem's name, when the death of the ego comes, that's why death is part of the purification process of the soul that's why every soul has to go through that process of death, of the ego coming to an abrupt end, surprising end, a total end. And, but then there's, other, there's more cleansing processes. There are a cleansing process for evil deeds or evil thoughts or evil speech that we've thought, spoken, or acted on in our lives. That's what we call Gehenna, we call hell. Not a, not, hell is not the eternal barbecue or, the, or a punishment process. It's a cleansing process. And then you also have a cleansing process for the permitted things that we've done. Not the prohibited things that we've done. The permitted things that we've done. But the things that we've done without any higher or noble thought, without any higher thought for the sake of heaven, for the sake of Hashem, but just, just for the sake of indulgence. Self-gratification as an end in itself, which degrades our soul, leaves a mark, and a, a scar in our soul, and we need a purification process to cleanse us. And these are the different purifications that are described in the holy books. One is called chibut hakever, the pain that the, the body and the soul experience once the body is brought, to gra- brought, brought and buried the body goes through a painful process, which is called chibut hakever. We should never find out about these things. And the other one is called kafakela, where the soul, before the soul enters into heaven or hell, 
soul is thrown around like from one, one, one end of the universe to the other end of the universe, not in the physical sense, but in the spiritual sense, whatever it is, it's very painful. They just use an analogy, just like you can imagine being tossed from one, one end of the world to the other. You imagine how painful that would be. That's how painful it is for the soul to go through these purification processes. Because the soul is like a clean set of clothes. We, we're born with a clean slate, and then the, the clothes, the beautiful suit, silk, beautiful suit, comes soiled and dirty because we roll in the mud <laughs> and we do things that are very foolish and we don't take care of that precious clothes that we have and we soil it and it's good clothes we don't throw it out the clothes is not destroyed you take it to the cleaners you take it to the cleaners if it's a heavy stain the cleaners has to sit and scrub and you know really get it out and wring it and scrub it and the more the stain and the more the, the heavier the stain the more difficult it is to cleanse it but ultimately good cleaners could restore the suit back to its original state because its original state its natural state is pure and good so to every soul its original natural state is pure it's inherently pure but we've accumulated a lot of junk a lot of garbage a lot of you know we've soiled ourselves and therefore we have to go through these purification processes it's all personal and subjective it depends what the person has done it all depends on our activities throughout our life how we lived our life the thoughts that we had and the speech, that, how we conducted ourselves and how we uh, behaved and we've done things that are prohibited or we've done things that are kosher but not in a kosher way, not in a Jewish way, not in the, uh, with the sake of heaven, with the intent of Hashem, but just for its own sake. Materialism is an end in itself for its own sake, which degrades and coarsens us and soils us so Depending on that, you have the different levels of purification processes that we have to go. So he says the purification process for someone who has not violated anything, any prohibition, but just has indulged in materialism for materialism's sake, is the purification of chibut hakever. That is why the body must undergo the purgatory of the grave, a specific punishment for the body, in order to cleanse it and purify it of the uncleanness which it had received from the enjoyment of mundane things and pleasures, which are from the impurity of the Klipa Noga and of the Jewish demons, i.e. the Jewish Yetzahara, which desires committed matter. Unless one had never derived enjoyment from this world all his life, i.e. either he actually derived no enjoyment, or his enjoyment was not of this world, since all his actions were completely for the sake of mitzvot and holiness. As was the case with Rabbeinu HaKadosh, Rabbi Judah the Prince, who said at the time of his demise that he had had no enjoyment of this world, even to the extent of his small breath. He, who never derived pleasure from this world all his life, need not undergo the purgatory of the grave. However, anyone who has not attained this level must undergo this punishment to purify his body of the uncleanness received from the enjoyment of mundane pleasures. So, why is he bringing the example of... Rabbeinu HaKadosh, the Holy Rabbi, Rabbi Yehud Judah, the Prince, the author of the Mishnah, obviously was a tzaddik. The Talmud says, Rabbi Yehud HaNasi on his deathbed raised, raised his hands to Hashem and says, I testify heaven and earth that I did not enjoy, I did not enjoy even a drop of this world. 
What's the novelty of Rabbeinu HaKadosh? Rabbeinu HaKadosh, the Talmud says, was one of the wealthiest Jews ever. He was as him and Antoninus, the Roman emperor, were in the same caliber. They were best friends. Rabbi Yudha Kadir had a royal table. The Roman emperor had a royal table. Rabbi Yudha Kadir had a royal table. And on his table, he always had radishes and, and items that you couldn't find. They were not in season. But because he was so wealthy... At all times throughout the year, he had the greatest delicacies. He always had available at his table. And he would feed his guests, even if he himself would not eat anything. But he would benefit from the fact that his table was, the fact that you have such a royal table, such honor, and such royalty, that gives you tremendous pleasure. And nevertheless, even though he had such great pleasure, he testified that I never had any pleasure of this world. Which teaches us a very tremendous lesson. The Rebbe is trying to say that when you say, how can a Jew exempt himself from the cleansing process of Chibut HaKever? You would think the only way to um, avoid this cleansing process is by never enjoying anything of this world. Meaning, always eat fat-free food bland food choose foods that have no taste that, that taste more like medicine than food that the only reason you're eating it is because it's healthy things that are horrible tasting and then you can honestly say if you go through your whole life eating things that are tasteless black bread and things that are tasteless you'll say yes I never enjoyed anything in this world but the moment you eat and participate of this world and it's tasty let's say I eat a juicy piece of steak I can't say it's not tasty it's tasty I feel it I'm not numb I eat a delicious trollant I taste it matter of fact on Shabbos you're supposed to eat delicious food tasty food delicacies on the holidays has to be even some special delicacies meat juicy meat choice meat so if a person chooses or a person eats food which he can't help but enjoy and find tasteful then there's no way for you to exempt yourself from, this, from the cleansing process of Chibot so the Alter Rebbe says no and that's why he brings a proof from Rabbeinu HaKadosh Rabbeinu our teacher not only because he was a great tzaddik but he's teaching us that although he benefited and enjoyed from his regal and royal table, even if he didn't eat from the food, even if he just ate the black bread, but the fact that on his table it was a royal table and he had a royal feast and at all times and his table was full and he was able to feed, that gave him tremendous pleasure. It must have. And yet, nevertheless, he can honestly say, I did not enjoy one drop of this world. Why? Because his intent was for the sake of heaven. So as long as your intent is for the sake of heaven, even though you're enjoying the experience and you're enjoying the material experience, that food and that energy is elevated into the realm of holiness. And it doesn't leave any negative scars on your soul. And then if you go through your entire life, following the example of our teacher, Rabbeinu, our teacher, HaKadosh, the Holy One, who taught us how to engage in this world, be involved in this world, 
enjoy a juicy piece of steak and at the same time honestly be able to say I didn't enjoy this work because my intent was not I don't live my life for the sake of indulgence that's not my highlight that's not what it's about it's a means to an end my highlight, when do I come to life what's my goal what's my purpose, what's the theme of my life to serve Hashem in order to serve Hashem I need to eat well, I need to relax, I need to sleep, and I need to take care of myself and exercise, etc., take care of my body. But it's a means to an end. That's not how I define myself. I don't define myself by indulgence, materialism, money, fame, power. Although I may spend a lot of my time acquiring money, and, and, but that's not, that's not who I am, that's not what it's about. My intent is to serve Hashem, to be a good Jew. In order to be a good Jew, I need wealth and I need power and I need all the good things that will enable me to, do a, to be a good Jew. Then even if you enjoy the material experience, it's healthy, it's wholesome, it's divine, it's a divine experience. It's not something that's degrading on the contrary. It becomes a wholesome experience. It's only when materialism defines you and you're trapped by it and that's the sum total of who you are that it becomes a degrading experience. And you're imprisoned by it. But the moment you're greater than it, and you're not defined by it, then it becomes a wholesome experience. And you define it. It becomes a wholesome, positive experience. And it doesn't leave any negative trace. There's no negative trace. It's an entirely, completely, 100% wholesome, elevated, and elevating experience. A holy experience. That's, that's, Rabbeinu, our teacher, empowered us and showed us the way and demonstrated to us how a Jew, especially our generation, which is the wealthiest generations of Jews that ever lived. So Rabbeinu HaKadosh is our Rebbe, our teacher, our role model. How you can live in this world, be down to earth, experiencing materialism, everything that's kosher, in the best way, in the most beautiful way, and at the same time honestly say that everything that I'm doing is for the sake of Hashem. And mean it honestly. And it's true. And then all of your experiences, everything you come in contact with, become elevated and holy. Rabbi Nachum of Chernobyl, they once brought for him milk. He asked for milk, and they brought him milk. Not realizing when they brought him milk, it was chalavakum. It was milk by a non-Jew without any, any Jewish supervision. And he looks and he says, where's my milk? I asked you to bring milk. He says, Rabbi, we just brought you milk. He says, I don't see any milk. Where's the milk? And he didn't see the milk. He says, Rabbi, here's the milk. We brought you milk. And they were astonished. What do you mean? The milk is standing right, for his, right there on his table. And he, he, he couldn't see the milk. And they had no idea there was anything wrong with the milk. Later on, they found out that it was cholavak, non-Jewish milk. And then... I don't know if he or someone else said, the Talmud says, the language in the Talmud is that that milk that was milked by a non-Jew, a Jew doesn't see it. So he says, it means literally, a real Jew, doesn't see it. He doesn't see something that's prohibited, something that's forbidden, he doesn't see it, he simply doesn't see it. The object itself became a prohibited object, and he doesn't see it, he didn't see it. But it, it contaminates the mind. 
when you eat non-kosher food, even something that's rabbinically non-kosher, it contaminates the soul. It brings impurity. And especially since you're digesting it and you're internalizing it, you have to be extra careful. You know, we need super unleaded. They're very delicate engines. And that could be the reason why so many Jews are young Jews are into vegetarianism. Instinctively, without even realizing, they know that it doesn't agree with them. Non-kosher food, ham, doesn't agree with them. So unwittingly, by becoming vegetarian, on the most part, they're adopting a kosher diet. Because it, does, it clogs our system. Non-kosher food literally clogs our system. The Jewish soul is very sensitive, very delicate. The feelings that we have towards godliness and the enthusiasm and the excitement and the fire it's very subtle. And when we eat non-kosher food, it degrades us, it coarsens us, it clogs us. And therefore, we, it, it blocks our feelings. Suddenly, we, don't, we lose that sensitivity, we lose the feelings. What if a person already ate this non-kosher food? Then the only answer is if you do the highest level of teshuvah. If you do the highest level of tshuva, tshuva out of love, then we learned earlier that even the negative becomes transformed into positive. Would it still leave a, no, a, a, a scar? So it would, seem, it would seem not. It would seem that the power of tshuva, he said clearly earlier in chapter 7, says the power of tshuva has the power to transform even the negative, the three klipot atmeot, permanently. Neg- prohibited food it has the power to transform that into something positive so it would seem that food if the power of the shuva is so powerful that it could transform <clears throat> non-kosher food to holy to then perhaps it wouldn't even leave a spark and how much more so kosher food But but it's 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 worse than all prohibitions because because you internalize it. The ultimate level of tshuva, it would appear that it wouldn't even leave a a mark, a scar. On the contrary, it totally transforms negative into positive. Um, What's the ultimate level of tshuva? Tshuva from love, tshuva out of love. But when you reach such a level of tshuva. It changes you. It transforms your whole being. It shatters your whole being. When your heart is so shattered and so broken, it, it, it's like you become a different, different dimension. And it totally transforms. You can reach into the past and change the past. So it reaches into the past and changes that negative experience becomes positive. So if you can reach the past and change the past, so it's almost certain to say that it doesn't leave any negative scar. Because if you reach into the past and change the past, there's no negative. Here you're saying you ate something kosher and then you with that energy, but you ate it, you indulge. And then with that energy you went ahead and you studied Torah, but in the meantime, while you ate it and became part of your blood, your intention was indulgence and therefore it leaves a scar, even though later on the food is elevated. But with the level of teshuva that comes out of love, you're reaching into your past. So you're changing that whole experience. So retroactively... Not only wasn't it negative, not only did you neutralize it, it actually became a positive, a mitzvah, a holy experience. 
Therefore, real Baal Tshuva would seem doesn't have Chibut HaKeva. A genuine Baal Tshuva would seem doesn't have Chibut HaKeva. The level of love, the highest level of Tshuva. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.